One more text, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, familiar passage that most of us know. Acts 9, 1 through 19. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogue, to Damascus, so that he... So that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was, as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city. And it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And as he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here... He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized, and he took food, and he was strengthened. The Word of the Lord. We've been working through... Uh, uh, I guess a series on stories and backstories, and um, we've said how how does God work in our lives? And we said that there's no one, not even the Apostle Paul. There's no one that just gets zapped into the kingdom. There's no one. And many of you have have talked talked talk to me about Acts chapter nine. If you're like me, I grew up thinking that he was zapped into the kingdom. Basically, he heard a voice, he saw Christ, and he made a confession, and that was over. It was done. He was in. But even if you read the text, you find out that it's three days later that he calls on the name of the Lord. So you know that he wasn't converted immediately on the road when he met Christ. Other things are going on. Even here we see three days of being, we're going to see, under condemnation. And before these three days, I believe he's under conviction for sin. And this is true of all of us. All of us. Not one of us is going to enter the kingdom. We're going to be going down the road and immediately turn, to the, turn around and start going the opposite direction. Not without something happening. 
God works in our lives. He doesn't turn us like that. What He does is He works on us with the Word. He works on us with people who tell us about Jesus and it just irritates the fire out of us. It bothers us. Some people get angry. Have you ever noticed that? You talk about grace in the gym like I did to one of the women. I mean, she didn't talk to me for two days. Now, she pays me. She paid me a bunch of money every week to train her. And then for two days, she didn't talk to me. So I worked her out. She never said a word. Other people at times when I talk about Christ, they didn't come back for a week. <laughs> and then I'd, assume I'd be waiting on them at their time. And there they'd be. We'd walk back in. Sometimes it, God uses sermons. Sometimes God uses moms. Sometimes God uses a track. Sometimes God uses the Bible. He just uses different things to bring the truth to our hearts. And so what we're going to see here is Saul of Tarsus. We left him after Acts chapter 7. We left him being a coat watcher. We left him with everybody else throwing stones and he's watching the coats. And then you get to chapter 8 and he's raging against the church. And then you get to chapter 9, what we just read here. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, he's, his environment, his environment, his breathing environment, his, he, he, this is what he's breathing in and out like oxygen. And we see Luke in Acts. He's weaving together the Stephen and the Saul narrative together. And I believe that basically at the end of chapter 7, when it says he's, cu- he's cut to the quick, I think the sin that's cutting him to the quick is the sin of covetousness. If you go read Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, he talks about the, the, the tenth commandment coming alive and he died. <laughs> What's that sound like? Everybody in here who knows their Bible, everybody in here who likes to talk about total depravity, you go run over in your mind, Ephesians chapter 2, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I think that's when he fi- figured it out. I think he knows he's dead in his trespasses and sin. It says that it produced coveting in him of every kind. And I think that coveting started, I think, remember folks, he would never have said he didn't understood, understand sin. This is a, par- a Pharisee. He knows the Ten Commandments. But this is where the Tenth Commandment began to rip him open. And so Saul's standing there at the feet of this man named Stephen. And he turns from coat watcher to forgive me, but I know there's a movie by the name of this, but he turns from a coat watcher to a man on fire against Jesus Christ, ravaging the church. And I think it starts with Stephen. Up to this point, Saul of Tarsus has never met his equal. And you and I, we could go run over to Philippians chapter 3 and we could talk about all his advantages and all his accomplishments. And he is, Jesus called Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. I would say at this point in time, maybe we would say that Saul of Tarsus is the second teacher in Israel, just right underneath Gamaliel. That was his teacher. He was still alive. But when he's face to face with Stephen, he runs into a man who's far superior to him. He runs into a man who has power and wisdom and the ability to argue with the Scriptures in a way that he can't compete He argues from the Scriptures in a way that he's defeated. He sees God's mercy. He sees God's forgiveness. How can you not covet a man who stands there and says, I see God the Father, Jesus Christ, standing at His right hand. How do you compete with that? This guy doesn't know this. And that's all he wants. He sees a guy with God's favor all over him. 
The Bible says they saw him like a man who had the face of an angel. What's not to covet? (laughs) A shockwave of covetousness goes through him. He doesn't say, hey, Stephen, hey, guys, listen, we got to stop and listen to Stephen. He's got something for us. He knows the mercy of God. No, he doesn't do that. He joins in with them and he gets worse. He doubles down. Hostility. What does this teach us before we even get to our first point? Well, this teaches us not to despair over those for whom we're praying and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ when they become inexplicably hostile to what we're saying. Sometimes, don't, you, don't you do that? Oh man, I sat to talk to him about Christ this past week, guys. I was in this, I was in this uh, wedding and I preached to half the congregation didn't know Christ and I'm telling you, none of them talked to me. Those 50 didn't talk to me. I preached the gospel in the, in the, in the wedding. Do I, do I despair over it? Are we to despair? Oh, look at Saul. Man, he's crazy. He's mad. The Tenth Commandment's working in his heart. God's working in this guy's heart. He's more hostile than ever. <laughs> he's more provoked than ever. The Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandments working in his heart. You, you may not know it when somebody goes crazy that you're sharing the gospel with. When a family member is mad when you share the gospel with them. Sometimes it's hostility first. Sometimes it's hostility escalated first. And then it's followed by repentance later. And that's what we're going to see in Saul today. How does Saul of Tarsus move from covetousness to being in Christ? I want you to notice the first point, the confrontation of sin. Everything's personal. Now Saul still breathing threats and murder, verse 1, against the disciples of the Lord. It's personal. Think about Paul. Think about Saul. He's hunting people down. He is hunting Christians down. And Jesus is hunting him down. It's personal. He's going to apprehend the followers of Jesus. And as we've studied in Philippians, Jesus is going to apprehend him and tie him, if you will. If you've seen these, these you know, I watch all the DCI shows and they go arrest these people and they, they handcuff them to a bench. That's what Jesus is doing with him. He's handcuffing him to a bench. And he's going to find out he's under condemnation. Can you believe this guy? This guy knows the Bible better than any one of us. And he doesn't understand the Bible's about Jesus. He gets it all wrong. He's going after the people who love God. And he's on the wrong side of that. It's this man who's confronted by Jesus. Suddenly a light goes goes up before him. The sun flashes in front of him. He sees a person and he he knows he's seeing a person. He doesn't know that person. Not yet. He hears a voice speaking to him. It's very interesting. He's the one who sees the person. The folks around him do not see the person. He's the one who hears the voice. They know something's being said, but they don't know what's being said. Isn't that interesting? It's personal. It's personal for Saul of Tarsus. He says it's personal interrogation. Saul, Saul, why are you you persecuting me? Have you ever, have you ever looked, has anybody ever taught you that when somebody uses their name twice, probably we learned this growing up, you don't really have to have me to tell you. If somebody says your name twice in your house, probably getting your attention, Matt, Matt, right? Hey, hey, 
I've got to get your attention. Something important's coming. Saul, Saul. Moses, Moses, God calls Moses, stops him dead in his tracks, and then he tells him something important. You're going to be the deliverer of Israel. Jesus, before he says very important things, what does he say? Truly, truly. Samuel, Samuel, I'm calling you to be the kingmaker. You're going to anoint the first king. You're going to anoint the second king. You're going to be the prophet during this time. Saul. He's arrested by what's being said. It's personal. And why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He, he probably doesn't really need. He knows this is somebody he needs to obey. He calls him Lord or Sir. And then Jesus identifies himself and he says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. So Saul of Tarsus is confronted by the resurrected Christ. He is the one who's seeking to extinguish the ones who follow Jesus. And in doing that, he's persecuting Jesus himself. And that's followed by something that's not in our text. In Acts 28, 14, the Apostle Paul, he recollects this whole scenario in Acts 9. And he adds something that was said that's not here in Acts 9. We, there's, we could talk about that. You know, when people tell the truth, what they do is they tell you, uh, information first, then you ask them later on, you ask them again, and they'll tell you that what they told you, and they'll add something to it. That's a person who's telling the truth. And so here's something else that Paul says in Acts 28, 14. He says this. This is Jesus' personal declaration. Is It is hard for you, Saul, to kick against the pricks. It's hard for you, Saul, to kick against the pricks. This is Jesus' commentary on what's going on in him. What is he kicking against? I'm telling you again, I think that he's kicking against the 10th commandment. What's bludgeoning him is he sees favor in somebody like Stephen. And he wants it with all of his heart. It's cut him to the quick. What has he understood from the sermon in Acts chapter 7? Let me give you some things. He sees a man with God's favor all over him. He sees a man who understands that Jesus is the deliverer. Remember what Stephen said. Stephen said, you guys, Israel and Saul as a representative of all Israel, you guys in the past, what you have done is you have rejected the deliverer. They rejected Joseph and he delivered them. They rejected Moses at first and he delivered them. And you, Saul, and you all, Israel, you have rejected the Messiah. You have rejected the deliverer. You are the one, just like your ancestors, who persecuted the prophets. Now you've persecuted the final prophet. You messed up. You made the mistake. You put to death the Messiah. And yet he is the one who is standing in front of him. And he is going to save the apostle Saul of Tarsus. But instead of repenting at first, remember, what, he does, he, what does he do? He's going to double down. He's not going to say, what shall we do to be saved? He's going to get worse than you can imagine. How can I be so wrong? I don't know. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? How, how can you be so? How can I be so wrong? I mean, I won't, I won't say exactly person's names, but I've been on the, on the side of something. 
And I'm thinking to myself, I'm on the wrong side of this person that I held to be so right. And this person I held to be so right. And this person I held to be so right. And I've studied the Scriptures and I've come to believe this and not what they believe. And I just felt like I was going to be crushed by these three people. How can I be so wrong? How can I be so wrong? All my guys... All my guys that I know, they all believe the same thing. This is what Saul is saying. How can I be so wrong? All the Pharisees on, on my side. I got I to gotta keep believing what I've been taught. <laughs> I got to keep going after what I've been taught. Jesus is not the Messiah. I got to go against this. But he knows. He's being, being prodded. And he knows that Stephen has something that he needs. Sometimes all it takes for us is one sin to set us off, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that? Saul of Tarsus, one sin that set him off, 10th commandment. Cain saw the Lord favored Abel and Abel's offering. You know what he did? Instead of going to God and saying, God, I need to get right with you, you know what he did? He focused on, on uh, Abel who had the favor of God. He saw that Abel had something that he wanted. God came to Abel and he told him, he says, if you, do, if you do what is right, if you do what is right, will your face, your countenance not be lifted? Will you not have my favor? And he kept his eyes on Abel and he killed him. Same thing, isn't it? It's exactly the same thing. Nothing new under the sun. Saul's not new. We've studied on Sunday nights. We've studied about King Saul. And King Saul, when he saw the favor of God on David out there, when he saw the favor on David, he coveted that and he would seek to kill him from 1 Samuel 18 all the way to 1 Samuel 31. All those chapters are nothing but King Saul coveting a man who has God's favor. He knows he needs to get right with God. His issues with God. But he just sees what somebody else has and he's upset about it. Let me give you one more. Y'all know the story about Ahab and Naboth's vineyard? Ahab lived, had a palace in Jezreel, and he saw Naboth's vineyard, and he wanted that vineyard, and he went to him, and it's totally, perfectly within his right to say, I'll give you a better vineyard in its place, or I'll give you enough money and buy it from you. Totally fine at this point. And Naboth says, no, this is the inheritance of my family from God. And he says, I'm not going to sell it to you. And Naboth goes back home and Naboth turns his face to the wall and it says that he's sullen and vexed with his face turned to the wall. This is the king coveting. He's not happy about his lot. Our kids say, what's the 10th commandment teach us? It teaches us to be content with our lot, right? See, our lot. He's not content with his lot. And then when Jezebel finds out why he's turned his face to the wall like a little child. She goes out and she makes sure that Naboth is accused of things he did not do and murdered. And then he takes possession of what's not his. Sometimes all it takes is one sin to undo us. Saul of Tarsus, it was covetousness. What Maybe it's one sin. I don't know what your sin might be. One sin that be, it begins to irritate us. One sin that gets under our fingernails bothers us. And we don't respond the right way many times, do we? Maybe we can respond. We don't go out and kill Stephen. We don't go out and kill uh, Naboth. We don't go out and chase after our David. Maybe we just go into our room and we turn our face to the wall like Ahab. And we're just discontent. Or maybe, maybe you do like I did. I think 
Folks, I think that I didn't really under, I, I think I could have told you what the gospel is. You could have said, hey, pastor, what's the gospel? And when I was like 20 years old, and I would have told you, yep, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Put your faith in him. But you know, I kept, even though I could quote it for you, I kept trying to save myself. Have you ever felt like you were trying to save yourself? Because you see, when it comes to certain sins, I'm going to kill, get rid of that sin, and I'm going to mow that sin down, and I'm going to double down on that sin, and I'd be so proud of myself for four or five weeks, and I would be so happy about being crushing that sin, and being over that sin, and then the next thing I know, sin would come along and he'd take me like, you know, y'all know who Bam Bam is in Flintstones? Bam Bam take hold of that mallet of his and go, bam, bam, bam. That's what I felt like. Sin would come along and say, you think you've mastered me? Let me show you who the master is. Bam, bam, bam. And I'm walking around going, I finally call on the name of the Lord and say, Lord, I can't save myself from this. But see, we double down. And we don't call on, we just keep trying with all our might to do what only God can do. And we need to call on the name of the Lord. We're going to get there in a minute. The second point is this. Not only is there this confrontation with sin, but there's this condemnation for sin. So in verses 6 through 9, Jesus instructs Saul, he says this, but get up and go into the city and it will be told you what you must do. And so... This is one of those times when you go study the Bible and you go, wow, (laughs) there's some cool stuff here, so listen. Have you ever thought about this? He's under condemnation on the road, being walked all the way back to Damascus. As God moves him from covetousness to in Christ, the Spirit of God is working in him. There's no zap. There's a conversion going on. He's confronted with his sins. And now what is he doing? He is at noonday. Listen, I want you to listen to the words. At noonday, he's being taken by the hand all the way to Damascus. His eyes are open, but he's blind. Blindness is a sign of condemnation. Deuteronomy 28, 28 and 29 says this, The Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. And you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness. Moses told the people of God upon entering the promised land that if they broke covenant with him, they would be smitten with blindness at noonday and they would grope and be led by the hand. That would be one of the curses of breaking covenant with God. And so just getting to the point here, if you remember, the southern kingdom is taken by Babylon taken by Nebuchadnezzar, and the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does to King Zedekiah, who will not submit to Babylon, the first thing that he does is he takes his sons and kills them before his eyes, then he puts his eyes out so that that's the last memory he has. The king represents all Israel. The king and all Israel, I mean Judah, are taken into Babylonian captivity. And Saul represents all Israel who's rejected Jesus Christ the Deliverer. And he's being confronted for a sin. And don't think he's missing what it says in Deuteronomy 28. He knows about the noonday. He knows about being led by the hand. He knows he's under the wrath and curse of God. And it's going to last for three days, this condemnation that he feels. He's been under conviction, but now it's intensified. This is the third point. 
the chosen of the Lord. Notice this. Saul's being led by the hand. He's going to a house of Judas. He's going on, on a street called Straight, and he's praying there. And this is very interesting. This is where you have to be careful not to preach another sermon. But, but he is uh, being called to be an apostle. This has all the earmarks of an extraordinary experience that, that men would go through to be called to, to be a, pro, a prophet or an apostle. And so he's being chosen by Christ. And he even says to Ananias, he says, He will bear the gospel and he will suffer for my sake. And so with all the other Old Testament prophets and the other apostles, he's being called to be a, a preacher. This man, listen very carefully, this man is being called to be an apostle. This man is going to plant churches all across that part of the world. This man is going to write half of your Bible. He's called to do that. And then Paul even tells us that the foundation of this church, our church, all churches, true churches, are built on the prophets and the apostles' words. They pass off the scene. This gift of revelation has ceased. So what can we learn from this chosenness of the Lord for Him to be an apostle? Let me tell you what we can glean. It goes without saying that if Saul is to be a chosen instrument of the Lord to do all his work, does he not have to first be found in Christ? He's not in Christ yet. We're finding out that by God's sovereign decree, secret decree, he's been chosen to be an apostle. But doesn't he have to first call on the name of the Lord first? <laughs> doesn't he have to first be in Christ? That's the point. He's going to go out and preach people into the kingdom, but he has to be in Christ before he does it. Right? What we can learn from this is God elects people in His sovereign decree. Those are things secret to Him. How do we know that somebody is elect of God? Well, we learn from this that God, according to His sovereign election, chooses sinners, even sinners like Saul of Tarshish, the foremost of all. He chooses blind men. He chooses men who hate Jesus. This should give us hope for ourselves if we're not Christians. This should give us hope for our family members who are not Christians, even if they're the worst. <laughs> Paul's probably worse than anybody in your family, by the way. Second, we learn that the Lord uses means to bring His elect to Jesus Christ. And the chief mean is, means is this, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, you have to hear the gospel. Even Saul has to hear the gospel. He, can't, he, he has to go through it the same process you and I go through. He has to understand that he must repent and believe, which Jesus promises to give all his elect. And we learn that every elect sinner, no matter what his or her function in the church is, whether it's an apostle, whether it's an officer, or whether it's just the general office of every believer, there's no zap. There's no stopping from going to destruction and turning on a dime and going to life. It takes a process and there's people involved. There's Andrews involved. There's mom and daddies involved. There's preachers involved who share the gospel with us. You have to be confronted. You have to understand what it means to be condemned. And you have to call on the name of the Lord. That's what elect people do. Pastor, do you, do I, do, can I know I'm elect? Well, 
It's not for us to know the secret mind of God. But what we can know is this. Every elect person who hears the gospel does two things. They repent. They believe. And we could add a third. They start leading a holy life. That's, that's the little catechism for the, for the children. Saul still hasn't done that. So let's cut to the chase. So here's Ananias. Remember what happened? Ananias has a vision. The Lord comes to Ananias and said, I want you to go talk to Saul. I want you to lay your hands on him. And I want you to restore his vision to him. What does Ananias say? That's not a good idea, Lord. I know who this guy is. I know that he's harmed many people in Jerusalem. And I know he's here to harm more and, you know, ravage the church and all of that. And Lord, this is not a good idea. And he says, listen, he's he's encouraged him. He's, He's there praying. He's a chosen instrument of mine. And so Ananias departs and goes to the house. And we're told in verse, uh, in chapter 9 there, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you, this is Ananias talking. He says, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me to restore your sight. But as you look back, remember Acts 22 verse 16, Paul is rehearsing it himself. And he says, this is one more thing that Ananias said. After he preaches the gospel to him, he says this, Why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He hasn't done that yet. He's condemned. He's confronted for his sins. He may be told that, you know, he's chosen to be an instrument of God, but he still has to call on the name of the Lord, just like you and me. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and he quotes Joel 2 and he says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ananias, you, you would never know who this guy is. This is a little pipsqueak person. This is somebody nobody would know unless he went to go to this room and talk to Saul privately. But he had to hear the gospel preached. Saul, it's great for you to be under confrontation of your sin. And it's great for you to know that you're condemned for your sin. But brother, you've got to take your eyes off your sin and call on Jesus who saves you from your sin. Our catechism says that we need to understand the sinfulness of our, our sin. The sinfulness of our sin. And then it says we need to put our faith and trust in the mercy of God in Christ. You have to look at the one that you were ready to wipe off the face of the earth as your Savior. You must do it. And that's what the elect of God do. Do you want to know if you're elect? Are you calling on the name of the Lord? That's what the elect do. The chief exercise of faith is calling on the name of the Lord. Living faith. A faith that's granted to you by God, it will be marked by calling, by praying, by saying, Lord, save me. There's no calling on the name of the Lord without a, what? Preacher. When Saul heard the message, he began to wash away his sins in the blood of Jesus. He began to call on the name of the Lord, just like you, just like me, we all have to come this way. Romans ten seventeen, as Paul, if you go read Romans 10, you'll see, I, th- I think his testimony is there. But this is the end of it. He says, so faith comes from hearing Ananias. Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Let me end. In our days, 
Everything's moving to more worshiptainment. Everything is about entertainment. In our days, the gospel's being replaced with devotional thoughts. In our days, the, the preaching of the word is being replaced by nothing but singing and singing and singing and being excited over myself after my singing. And then I walk away. I don't hear the gospel. How can anybody be saved apart from hearing the gospel preached? Not even the Apostle Paul. If you go and read the book of Acts, you'll see that men and women, they do not come to Jesus Christ apart from preaching. And then after they hear the preaching, there's praying, there's calling, there's repenting, there's believing. There's all sorts of things that happens after it. Oh, friend, we need to, to hear the gospel preached. And listen, you and I as Christians and everybody else in the world, but we all need to hear the gospel every single Sunday morning, every Sunday night, all the time. I need to be saved by Jesus Christ from the penalty of my sin, and I need Jesus Christ in my life to, re, to, to be the resource so that I can walk with Him all these days through all the muck and the mire of everything we go through. We need to hear this every day. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. And He brings us bad news. Yes, we're in sin, but He also brings us good news. As, as we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we find ourselves not in sin, but in Jesus Christ. Saul of Tarsus is no longer in covetousness, but he's in Jesus Christ. No zap. He had a story. He also had some backstory. And it ended with preaching. And it ends with calling on Jesus. And I ask you, are you calling on Jesus? Not just one time, but all the time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Saul of Tarsus and this powerful story we all love so much. Thank you for teaching us about sin and a Savior. Thank you for teaching us about what it means to be in sin and how, how we can be, be those who are in Christ by faith. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for your grace that makes it happen. Father, I pray that we would always, all of us would always be calling on the name of the Lord. When we're down, when we realize we're lost, that we would call on the name of the Lord. And as your people, that we would continually call on the name of the Lord. See what you do for us. Find out that you're better than we could ever imagine. Father, help us now as we end this worship service and help us enjoy our fellowship together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.